Today's guest is Ben Grimes. Ben is the owner and operator of BKG uh, Coaching, where he's a leadership coach. He also works for the Department of Justice, although today he's appearing in his personal capacity. He doesn't represent the Department of Justice. Obviously, uh, he doesn't speak on their behalf, et cetera, et cetera. You're mostly lawyers. You know what's going on. Uh, he's not here to speak about DOJ. He's here to talk about leadership, how he goes from being um, an attorney to being a leadership coach and the importance of that. And of course, I'll answer all of our usual important questions. A lot of knowledge bombs in here. Uh, so I think everyone listening, lawyer or non-lawyer, is really going to appreciate it. Ben, thanks for joining us. Season two of Interrogatories, you are our first uh, guest. Oh, I, I'm honored, Josh. I am also excited uh, to see that you got re-upped for season two. Yes, it was a tough battle with the network, um, but here we are. And you know, no offense, I was trying to get Josh Shapiro, who's a gubernatorial candidate up there, up here in Pennsylvania, current attorney general. But as you can imagine, very difficult. So we got you instead. Well, I, I'm um, happy to fill in. I think I, I think you'll be fine. I think the audience will like it. You know, you've got a pretty unique background from people we've spoken to, um, and you and I have known each other for what ten years, eight it's years. It's been a at long least. time now. Then probably the only person we've had on this podcast who is as nerdy as I am about the rules of professional conduct and who takes their video uh, and audio quality as seriously. Yes, I hope that comes through the audio. Obviously, I hope that comes through uh, on the on the final product because I do take it seriously. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, and are you using? I know we've talked about you've got that camera where it like hangs in your screen because you're making very good direct eye contact with me. This is an audio medium, so they can't see that. But is that is that what you're using right now? Oh, I so I I have a uh, a homebrewed Jerry rig teleprompter setup. That's so I've right. Got a, a webcam behind a reflective glass with a small monitor between my two big monitors. Um, so I've got a three monitor setup. I've got can lights uh, to make sure that you could see me well. And uh, I've got the external mic. Um, I've got the headphones to make sure that we're not getting any echo or distortion. Uh, yeah, I'm ready for you, Josh. All right, excellent. Now, uh, I hope people, are, if they're still listening, um, you know, you work at DOJ. You're at uh, PREO, uh, Professional Responsibility Advisory Office. Yes. How does, I mean, that is a pretty random place to land in the Department of Justice. How did you... How did, what, tell us about your career path and kind of how you landed there. Yeah. Um, so, Mike, I'll tell you first a little bit about uh, where I'm at right now at the Department of Justice in the Professional Responsibility Advisory Office. It is one of three PR-focused organizations within the Department of Justice. My office, um, for which I'm the deputy director, does prospective advice to attorneys in the department. And so when they have a question about what the rules of professional conduct require, they can give us a call and we give them advice, jurisdiction-specific advice, practice-specific advice. So we're basically an internal ethics hotline, legal ethics hotline for DOJ attorneys. And then there's, uh, two, there are two other organizations, the Office of Professional Responsibility that does investigations on complaints about DOJ attorney conduct. And then there's also the Professional Misconduct Review Unit that imposes discipline on founded, substantiated investigations, uh, complaints of, against DOJ attorneys. So my, my job, our job in my office is the fun one. We get to keep people out of trouble by giving them good advice on the front end. So that professional, what was the PMRU? What P was that PMRU, one? Professional Misconduct Review Unit. Seems like that's the hardest one to say. 
Yes. Do they have a, like his professional responsibility advisory office? You guys go by Preo. We go by Preo. Uh, uh, the other OPR, one, I mean, OPR. OPR is easy. Do they just go by PMRU or do people call it Premur- or <laughs> No, they, they go by PMRU. Oh, boring. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is, is there a movement, do you know, within their unit to change their name and make it something more fun or do they not care? No, I think they don't care. I, I think, um, you know, ethics uh, attorneys as well as I do, Josh, um, we're not known for being uh, fun loving. Uh, I, I, I think that's a, a shame. I think we are for, far more fun loving than people give us credit for. Um, but that's not really what we're known for. No, that is true. Um, so let me, we'll, we'll get back to kind of how you rose to where you are and uh, ended up where you are in a second. But Speaking of ethics nerds, so this weekend, this will come out after this weekend, but you're going to a big conference, right? And speaking at a conference? That's right. The uh, the ABA's Center for Professional Responsibility is having its annual annual conference this uh, this week in Baltimore. So June 1st through 3rd, um, weeks ago when people hear this, right? Uh, but it, it was a great time. I'm sure it will be. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking- sure you crushed it. I crushed I'm going to crush it. It's going to be awesome. I'm speaking on a panel um, towards the end of the conference on uh, prosecutorial misconduct and and the extent to which prosecutors are or should be or are held to be ministers of justice. Um, And so we're going to, I'm gonna be on a panel talking with some other folks about prosecutorial misconduct and uh, in in specific rule of professional conduct 3.8D, which is the ethical analog to Brady and Giglio. And for those that are listening that don't know anything about criminal law or whatever, that's essentially, you know, having to hand over uh, evidence to the defense, things in your possession, whether they be inculpatory or exculpatory. That's right. Uh, All right. Well, yeah, that sounds like a good panel. Sorry, I couldn't be there. But, you know, kids, COVID, et cetera. Not this year, maybe next year. Next year in Jerusalem, as we say. Uh, So how do you get to be at DOJ? And that's Uh, what what people want to know. Yeah. So um, I had a very... uh, I think unusual path to DOJ, which was via a 20 year career in the army. And so I started out in the army as a helicopter pilot and spent four years doing that. And then went to law school on the army's dime and finished out the balance of my military career as a judge advocate, as a military attorney. And along the way got into ethics and professional responsibility. And I can, I can tell you how that happened in a second. Uh, but then as I was transitioning out of the army, when, when I realized it was time and I knew it was time when my, when my wife said, uh, you can stay in the army as long as you want, but we're done moving. Um, yep. uh, I decided it was time to, uh, to make a, a choice and I, and I chose to get out. And about that same time, this position that I'm in at Preo opened up and it was like stars aligning. It was the perfect fit for me at the perfect time. And I applied and got it. I mean, that's, it's as simple as that. But I, I had this background in professional responsibility at the time I applied for this job because um, I had, as you know, worked on the ABA's Standing Committee for Professionalism. That gave me some, some insight into it. But more importantly, I think I, was, I also spent three years teaching in the Army at the Army's Judge Advocate General's Legal Center on School, which is an ABA-approved uh, LLM program, right? Um, where I was a professional professor of criminal law and the vice chair of the criminal law department. And my teaching portfolio happened to be professional responsibility. It's not one that I wanted when I got there. 
Uh, I don't think anybody wants to be the, the, the PR guy uh, right. on faculty, but I found that I really, really enjoyed it and um, just have stuck with it since then. So when you were in the army, was that always the plan was to go to law school or did you kind of fall into that when you couldn't find a better job like most of us or what? Yeah, no, I, well, and speaking of couldn't find a better job, that's how I got into the army uh, in the first place. Um, but I didn't, I did not plan on being an attorney. Um, I know that so many people in the profession do, they can cite to some point in elementary school or something when they realized that they were going to be attorneys. And for me, that was never the case. I ended up in the army um, in part because I didn't know how to get into college. Okay. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, so let me, let me tie, let me tie, tie the connection to, to you and to Pennsylvania a little a bit, a little bit tighter. I, I am from York, Pennsylvania. And I think we've talked about this in the past, but yeah, I, I grew up in York. I've got family in York. Um, we are, you wouldn't know it to look at me, uh, but we are a, uh, a wholesome Pennsylvania Dutch heritage family, right? Um, but when I was growing up in high school, I didn't understand how paying for college worked. I, I just didn't get it. And I was naive and I, I, I didn't know any better. And I thought that in order to go to college, you had to either be able to write it like your, your family had to be able to write a check or you had to be able to get a scholarship. And the, like the process of getting a scholarship was also opaque to me. Yeah. And about that time that I was trying to figure out what to do, I heard about West Point and uh, heard that it was free. And that was the most important thing to me then. And I applied to West Point and I got early decision and I never applied anyplace else. Um, so there you go. One, one and done. One and done. Yeah. And, and so that, that got me, you know, that got me to college, clear, obviously. Uh, but, and that put me in the army. And that came with a, uh, I think a, at the time, a six-year service commitment. And um, I just kept going. And you kind of, I'm guessing, rose up the ranks in the army. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I, like I said, I flew helicopters for the first four years. So I went to flight school in Alabama and then I was stationed in South Korea. I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And while I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I saw an article in the Post newspaper, uh, which is like, uh, it's like your county flyer. It's like, it's okay. like the smallest newspaper around, right? It's not it's hardly a, new, a newspaper. It's more like a flyer for the community. And there had, there happened to be an article. I didn't, I never read the post new, newspaper. I, I, I didn't know anybody who did, but I happened to read it one day. And the day that I read it, there was an article about this program that pays for law school for about a dozen officers in the army every year. I said, that sounds awesome. Yeah. I, I love to get paid to go to school. <laughs> um, and so I applied for it and luck, I was accepted into the program, which was great and uh, ended up going to law school. Um, and the army, the, so the army paid for my undergraduate degree. It paid for my law school. It paid later for an LLM. So, I, you know, the army was very, very good to me um, over the years. Yeah. So good ROI on your taxes. <laughs> a good yeah. ROI on your taxes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so does that mean you were the first person in your family to go to college? Is that? No, uh, like, yeah, you would think it would because I was so naive about it. Um, I wasn't. No, my mom uh, went to college. Um, I've got uh, aunts and uncles who've been to college. Like, I, and, there's and there no was just nobody 
you were just kind of doing your own thing. And they were like, yeah, Ben will figure it out. Yeah. Th- th- I mean, there's no reason I should have known. Uh, there's no reason I shouldn't have known better. Um, but I didn't like, like I was, you know, 15, 16, 17 and stupid. So you're not that much older than I am. Didn't they have guidance counselors and this kind of thing back they, in the day? They did. I have no idea what I ever talked to my guidance counselor about. Um, I, I, Fair and, enough. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So did you come in uh, to Preo at the deputy director level? I did. Yes. Okay. So you didn't have to like rise up in the ranks, so to speak. No, no. So you kind of came into this leadership position um, and that's your first day. You're in charge of whatever it is, a dozen attorneys and some staff. That's right. That's right. Talk, talk to us about, I mean, I know you can't get into some specifics, but making that transition from, I'm assuming you were in a leadership role in the army yes. uh, into this, you know, slightly different situation, but you're coming in and you're the number two, you know, how did that, but you're also the new guy. How did that look? How did that work? Well, it, it, it looked and worked probably about how you think it did. It was a painful transition um, to some extent for me and for everybody else, because right. I was coming from a, a deep, experience in the army which is its own kind of culture right it, it it has its own culture and a big organization like the department of justice has its own culture and um they align in many ways uh, around service and uh commitment to uh, public ser- uh, pub- protecting the public but there are i think also some pretty significant differences and navigating those and demonstrating demonstrating credibility or, or earning credibility as a leader in the office um, was a challenge. Uh, you know, in the army, we move around a lot. We have a lot of different jobs. Every two or three years, we're, we're moving to a new place, a new job, a new responsibility, and a new set of people if you're an officer to supervise. But every time you do that, you're moving with some built-in credibility. Right. Like, y- y- People know because of your rank that you've been around the block and you've demonstrated um, at least enough wherewithal to not get fired and k- kicked out of the army, right? And so that's yes. that's some threshold level of of competence. Um, but when I moved to DOJ, you know, nobody knew me and nobody in the office uh, at the time had any military background themselves. Oh, that's not true. That's not that's not true. Um, there, there was limited military experience amongst the staff when I got there. And because of that, I think that there were some questions about um, my ability to lead the office, to, to be a competent um, manager and supervisor, as well as the, the regular questions about the substantive experience and substantive knowledge that I would bring to the table because the practice that we're in providing this PR advice uh, on the fly to folks in the field is pretty specialized. It's very nuanced to the way we interpret and apply the, the rules of professional conduct. And it's a pretty high bar. So there, I, I think there were a lot of questions within the office about w- what I was going to bring to the table substantively and managerially. Uh, how do you think your leadership experience that you had in the army kind of translated over to DOJ? Well, that's that's where I think my experience really did pay off. Uh, certainly, there were some questions about what I was bringing to the table, but I think what I was able to demonstrate through the way that I approached problems, the, the way that I approached the staff, that 
um, I did have the goods when it came to management and leadership. My experience in the army, I think it was very typical of others in the army, uh, except that I got to see both sides of both the uh, the supporting role that mm -hmm. lawyers play in the army and the supported role of uh, line officers. And common throughout both of those um, scenarios in the army is this culture of um, servant leadership and values-driven leadership that I think is the hallmark of our, our current army. You see this when uh, other folks talk about their experience or their, their their leadership experience in the army or their experience just being in the army, and that comes that comes through in a lot of different ways. It's it's the I think most commonly known or heard um, way this this gets conveyed is is leaders eat last, right? Just, you, know, you take care of everybody else. You make sure everybody else gets fed, and 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 then you take care of yourself. But it's the idea that taking care of your soldiers, taking care of your staff, that is the most important thing, because when they are taken care of, then the mission gets gets accomplished. And folks um, that are on your team can afford to be more invested in each other and in the mission because they don't have to worry about whether or not somebody has got their back. When, when you demonstrate that for them, it is much easier for them to put more effort and more commitment and, and more of themselves into whatever it is that we're doing together. And, and one of the keys is that we're doing it together. And um, I, I, I think that the way, the way that I understand that is you have to trust yourself at, in order to demonstrate trust in others. So you have to be confident in who you are and what you bring to the table. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have you, you're going to have uh, concerns about whether or not you have the skills, but whether or not you have the commitment to your team and the people that you're leading and supervising. That that you should be sure of, and you should trust yourself that that is going to be enough. And when you do that, then you 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 can afford to trust others in a much deeper and more meaningful way. When you have trust, it's easier to be transparent. And for me, transparency has kind of two, two primary lenses. One is the transparency of information. You can't be stingy with information. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways of demonstrating trust is sharing information to be transparent with that. The other piece of transparency for me, and I think this is supremely important as a leader, is to be vulnerable um, to your transparency that vulnerability allows you to be authentic. Um, and so there's, there's no cookie cutter version of what a leader should be. But if you're going to be in a leadership position, you've got to be authentically yourself because if you're not, it is absolutely obvious to the people that you're working with um, and that diminishes trust. So trust, transparency, um, I think are very important. And, and the other piece of leadership that I really focus on and was demonstrated to me as I grew up is empathy. Um, as a leader, it's really important to understand the perspective of the people that you're working with and supervising. You don't have to get wrapped up in whatever um, concerns or burdens or, 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 or drama they might have, but you have to understand 
where they're coming from and you have to understand their perspective. And when, because when you understand that drama, that those burdens, then you can take action to support them in ways that you can, right? When you can support them, that, that shows that trust in them to not be perfect, right? They're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. And that has to be okay. All right. I'm going to interrupt you here because you're dropping all kinds of bombs. <laughs> um, so, well, first, let me say this, bury the lead a little bit. Uh, let's get back to put a pin in this leadership discussion. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you've got all these years of leadership experience and, um, now, I mean, I can tell people that you're now doing this professionally, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the Army. And one of the things that I really enjoyed in that time was the opportunity to lead, coach, mentor folks that I was working with. And um, since I've been out of the Army, I've been missing it. And so I decided to um, make myself more available to those opportunities to work with and coach other people who are interested in becoming strong leaders in their organizations. And so I, I launched this, uh, this new coaching practice, uh, BKG Leadership Coaching, and I am focused on helping lawyers in solo, small, and mid-sized firms unlock their, their, the confidence in themselves to lead with trust, transparency, and empathy. So let's go back to some of the stuff that you were talking about, because obviously this all ties into your coaching, um, the advice you give people, et cetera. You had said that one of the things that you think is important for leaders is to take care of others first. I mean, what would you say to those who kind of say the reverse, right? You have to take care of yourself first, the old put your mask on before you put on uh, your kids' masks or the ones you know that need help around you. I mean, how do you, is it just two different ways of thinking and two different leadership styles or what are your thoughts on that? No, I... I, I definitely agree that um, in order to take care of others, you have to take care of yourself. The, that I absolutely agree with putting your, your own mask on first. Um, but I think what gets lost in, in this, the, the current conversations about wellness and well-being and, um, and, and being healthy is there is somebody else out there that you, that as a leader, you are responsible for. And it, it's, it's important to take care of yourself. Certainly that is the first step, but as a leader, particularly within an organization with, even if it's just your, your solo firm or your, your small firm, you've got, you know, it's, it's an attorney and a paralegal or an attorney and, and three staff or whatever it's going to be, like whatever the size of your organization, you have other people that you're responsible for. And it's not enough just to take care of yourself. You've got to understand that you are responsible for the people that you're working with, particularly um, in a solo or small firm where, you're where you are paying them. If you're in a mid-sized firm where you have a leadership role, you're a rising associate, you're a brand new partner, you have obligations to the people that you are supervising. That I think is, th that to me, is a fundamental principle of leadership. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think those, those two can kind of blend together. Yeah, um, yeah. One, one of the things you also talked about is that your vulner, vulnerability um, makes you more authentic. Yes. Which I kind of understand where you're coming from, but do you have any examples of, you know, situations yeah. or, or how that would play out? Yeah, absolutely. So this, to me, this is a, this was where I saw this in action. Um, most clearly. I was teaching at the Army's JAG school in the criminal law department. And um, 
many army lawyers, myself included, grew up as criminal practitioners, right? So I was a prosecutor, I was a defense counsel in the army, in courts martial. And like many of the folks that I was working with, I saw, you know, violence and sexual assault and child pornography and like lots of bad cases. Um, And you know this, you're in a criminal practice. There's lots of bad stuff out there. Yeah. And when, and and you can see, and you see that, and lots of lawyers see this in their civil practice as well. There's a lot of conflict and that conflict can have collateral impact on us as attorneys because we deal with it day in and day out. What I noticed in myself and in my peers on, on, on faculty was that those impacts were having real effects on us. And in conversations, particularly around uh, sexual assault, because when I was there, we were, the army was dealing with um, its at the time, poor response to sexual assault in the army. Right. And, and, and the, the way that it was being handled was changing. So we had lots of conversations about sexual assault. And in those conversations, um, we, we talked about the value that we each found in therapy and counseling. Yes. And why that was important, because in some, in some instances, our faculty were having problems in the way that we related with our families, um, in the way that we um, interacted with our spouses. And so we were seeing those, the, the, collateral, the collateral effects of the representation of the United States in these cases or the collateral effects of representation of individual soldiers in these cases spill over into our lives. And we knew that this was happening for our students as well. And so we put on a panel um, where faculty members who at, at, the, at this point were senior, senior um, you know, mid-grade to senior officers in the army speaking to more junior officers in the army. And we put on a panel, we talked about the impact that these cases have had on us personally and the value that we have found personally through counseling and therapy. And in the course of that presentation, you, you could have heard a pin drop the whole time. It was dead silent. Everybody was riveted. And afterwards, each of us had students come to us, other officers come to us and say, this is real for me. And they would describe the impact that it, that that these cases were having on them in their lives. But, but that, trans, that transparency, that authenticity of that vulnerability opened the door for these junior officers to be not okay, to grow, and, and most importantly, to trust us with their vulnerability, to trust us with, with to talk about what they needed to grow as leaders. And, and for me, that was uh, a kind of a turning point in my understanding of what it means to be vulnerable and why it's so important. And now I think the last two years of COVID and perhaps more importantly, the last two years of um, growing civil unrest or or kind of cultural unrest with with, um, issues of diversity and underrepresentation and violence against underrepresented people, the ability to have a vulnerable conversation and to be authentically who you are as a leader is critically important because it creates a safe space 
for the people that you work, work with to be authentically who they are and to not be okay. Um, wow. Okay. That's very good example. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll cap it by saying the thesis of today's chat is uh, be in therapy. Everyone should be in therapy, especially lawyers, you know, do, you know, high suicide rate, high, high alcoholism Absolutely. rate, a lot of vicarious trauma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't have a good transition from that to my next question. No, so let's just do it. That's why, that's why I'm an amateur podcast. You know, so some of these professionals, they would have navigated some kind of uh, shenanigans right. transition. Three. Exactly. We'll figure it out by next season. Uh, so now is the portion of the show, what I like to call the lightning round, even though it is in no way related to lightning. It's not even quick, but that's what we call it. Yeah. Um, first question, you probably know coming, you know what's coming here, which is this, the Oxford comma. Uh, what's your stance on it? Do you use it? And does DOJ have an official policy? I realize you're not here as a DOJ representative, but you know, is there a guidebook or an MLA formatting or whatever that says you must or must not use an Oxford comma. Yeah. And, and um, I should have said at the outset, I am not here on behalf of DOJ. I'm going to put um, it in the, in the beginning. So don't you're worry. Gonna put about it, okay, it. good. Yeah. Um, so we don't have a standard. We don't have a, a DOJ standard on the Oxford comma. However, like you, Josh, I am a hardcore proponent of the Oxford comma. I think it's the only way to write. Okay, excellent. Um, what is something that you never do right, that you do wrong all the time? Oh, geez. There, uh, gosh, I knew this was coming, Josh, and yeah. I'm still not ready. Uh, how about this? Prepare for questions like this, like prepare for things I know that are coming that I, there that you I go. have the time to prepare for. There you go. That's well played. Um, what's something you hate, but you wish you loved? I... Um, I hate bananas. What? Yeah, I hate bananas. I've um, never, I, I, is it the consistency, the taste, what? It's all of the above. It's all of the above. I, I hate bananas. I wish that, because I, I know how healthy they are, right? Everybody else in the world loves them. You love them. Yeah, um, throw them in the smoothie. My kids, I have to limit oh, them yeah. to bananas. No, I can't. Like you put a banana in a smoothie, I'm off. It's not for me. Hmm. All right, well, I can tell you that's the most interesting answer I've gotten to that question. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you're starting this new company, you're doing all this leadership stuff. Uh, presumably I'm, I'm guessing you read a lot, but you've got kids and so maybe you don't have time. Do you have any book recommendations? Uh, so my favorite book is, um, and I read, I, I read this book every year. I've been reading it every year for the last, I don't know, five years. Um, it is the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it is a very kind of approachable introduction to stoicism and stoic philosophy. Okay. I love it. It's a great reminder. Uh, and like I said, I read it every year. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Lots, lots of great advice. I, I'm thinking right now of, of one of the folks I worked for in the army. He, he, had, he had two pieces of advice that really stick with me. One is uh, you should practice leadership by shoe leather. Okay. Is, you've got you've to move your feet, get out of your office, get to know your people by going to get to know your people. And yes, that's more challenging in this virtual environment and hybrid environment. But the idea is you've got to go to them, get to know them, spend time with them. That's that's your job as a leader. It's leadership by shoe leather. And the other thing he, he said all the time was let it cook, uh, which is don't you don't have to rush to answers. You don't have to rush to, to, to solutions. Sometimes the best course of action is to just let it cook, let it simmer, and come back to it in a minute. 
That's uh, perfect. Actually, it reminds me, I do have to put my crock pot on for dinner. We, uh, you're down in Virginia. I, I don't know if you have Wegmans down there, but up here we, yeah. you know, we've got Wegmans and uh, we do on Wednesdays, they, we've got a Sunday sauce or a chicken cacciatore. We pop that mm -hmm. in a slow cooker, but I got to put it in around, around noon um, when we're done here. That's, that's a very good piece of advice. Uh, where can people find you? Where can they find your leadership coaching, et cetera? Yeah, uh, you can find me online at bkgleadershipcoaching.com um, and email me at ben at bkgleadershipcoaching. Or you can find me, of course, on LinkedIn, uh, BK Grimes on LinkedIn or Benjamin Grimes, LinkedIn. Well, so what's the K? What's your middle name? It's Kelly. Okay. All right. Kelly, K-E-L-L-I, I'm guessing. <laughs> with a Y. Thank oh, you, okay. All right. All right. Well, it's good to know. Well, Ben, this was great. Um, safe travels to Baltimore for the conference, which you already crushed by the time people listen to this. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Super. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.